Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning us in on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Friday, July 16th, and this next hour we study the gift of the inspired and true word of God, and we put on our Christ goggles, and Lord have mercy, do we have to put on our Christ goggles for Nehemiah chapter 3. To this point, Nehemiah is the example of faithfulness. He has a job to do, he needs to do it, and today we get to hear how he does it. He inspects the wall, and today we get the details of this restoration. It points us to more than just the wall itself. It has wider implications and, of course, gives us Christ. This morning, the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's word, we welcome Pastor Ned Murby of Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma. Pastor Murby, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you, Brady. It's good to be with you this morning. Pastor, this is our first time together. I know you've been a guest on KFUO and multiple programs, but I, I'd love for you to be able to introduce yourself, uh, what's going on with your family, and the work of the saints at Trinity. Well, So I live in Blackwell, Oklahoma with my wife, Mary, and our six children. Um, We are currently enjoying a nice uh, summer break from homeschool lessons and enjoying the unusually cool weather for July in Oklahoma. So um, that's been quite a blessing. Uh, The saints at Trinity joyfully gather on Sunday morning to receive the gifts of Christ, and it is a pleasure to serve them and and be among them, and um, just an absolute privilege to dive into the Word of God with His people as we get to do today as well. Now, Pastor, when you are in Oklahoma, see, being a Minnesotan, and more or less, I mean, I lived in uh, Kansas for a time, a little bit northern Kansas, Topeka. I lived in Missouri, obviously for seminary. Um, but Oklahoma is kind of like this lost place that I can't even imagine. So I envision um, football being important in Oklahoma. Uh, uh, yep. Heat, as you said, it's usually hot and open fields. And that's about it. So tell us a little more about Oklahoma and the joys of being there. Well, um, I've lived and served in Oklahoma for about 11 years now. And everything that you said is true. Um, (laughs) Football is um, kind of in everybody's blood here. Um, You don't have to talk to somebody too long before you find out if they root for OU or OSU. (laughs) Um, And being not too far from Stillwater, we have probably a higher percentage of Oklahoma State fans than, than elsewhere. Um, but we have our OU uh, fans too, as um, including some of my relatives. But as a Texan, I try to stay out of those conversations as much as possible, and I just uh, I stay quiet. Um, the 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 landscape of Oklahoma is beautiful in its diversity. Um, Eastern Oklahoma is is kind of in the foothills of the Ozarks. Um, so you get mountains, cool, clear streams, um, and the, the beauty, I guess, that attracts uh, some people of, of not being able to see very far down the street. Um, here in north central Oklahoma, if you get out of town, you, especially if you get the, a little bit of a high point, you can see for miles and miles, and you can go further west, and it gets flatter and flatter so um we raise a lot of cattle raise a lot of wheat um some sorghum or milo soybeans a little bit of corn and a little bit of cotton is coming back um and of course we've got oil and natural gas um major industries in the state and more and more windmills go up every day well, I mean, this is something where it'd be great to take a trip to Oklahoma. And one of the joys that we have here on KFUO is that when we talk here, I'm in Minnesota, you're in Oklahoma, 
um, something that we wouldn't have dreamed of probably even 20 years ago. We're able to study the Word of God together as if we're in the same room and to hear of the same gifts that are given in my church are given in your church, and there's other listeners, for example, from the Philippines and from Hong Kong, from Canada, um, from Jamaica, uh, parts of, uh, of South America, that these listeners also in their churches, no matter the size, receive the same gifts and have the one Lord and the one name that saves us, which is in Christ. And that's one of the great joys of hearing what's happening there the context, and also what gathers us together, which is his word. So, Pastor, on that note, as we gather around God's word this morning, can you begin our time and ask the Lord's blessings in prayer? Uh, Certainly. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, which is heard around the world, calling people into your church from every nation. Bless us in this hour as we study your word given to us in the book of Nehemiah, especially in a chapter that may feel tedious and and boring, and yet it is part of your revelation of your love and care for your people. Grant that we would see Christ in these words and be comforted in the salvation that he has won for us. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor, nothing in Scripture happens outside of a context and a background. There's always a story that surrounds it. So what? when we look at Nehemiah, the whole book, because we're only into chapter 3, so there's still we're still getting our feet wet a little bit in this book. Uh, can you give us some background, maybe history, themes, or um, uh, context of what leads us to chapter 3 that will help us out this morning? Sure. So, you know, this is following the Babylonian exile. Um, The the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. Uh, We hear about this, especially in places like Jeremiah um, and and 2 Chronicles, how how Nebuchadnezzar had came and and carried off the people in in waves. Other people fled and went down to Egypt. but now, as, as Jeremiah had, had promised, you know, this exile would last 70 years. Uh, Isaiah foretold well in advance that, that Cyrus would be the one to, to start sending people who had been taken into exile back to Judea. Um, Daniel gives us a little bit more of that background. He, he comes across Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years and, and recognizes that the time is up, and, and he prays to God, and, and, and God um, gives him revelations as what he is doing kind of behind the scenes to bring his people back. Nehemiah is, is interesting. He, he's, in, in kind of, well, he's kind of like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, those were men from Judea who rose to places of prominence in, in first the Babylonian and then later the, the, the Persian Empire. And, and Nehemiah has a, a position of influence, not so much as, as Daniel, but he is cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the, the king of Persia. And it, it is in the reign of Artaxerxes that Nehemiah hears about these exiles returning to Jerusalem, you know, the desire to rebuild, and, and yet it hears that there is um, great trouble um, and great shame that, that the wall of Jerusalem remains broken down, the gates are still destroyed by fire. This is the damage that Nebuchadnezzar's army had, had done, and this grieves Nehemiah. Um, it, it, it's a grief that, that is both... Um, nationalistic but also religious and, and it's nationalistic in, in, in that you know Nehemiah is is a Jew he's, he's of the people of Israel the, the people that God had spoken to promising that as, as they are faithful to his covenant things would go well for them and when they turn from his covenant you know, he had threatened that, that punishment would come including exile and that has come 
Um, and, and, and so Nehemiah is grieved because he recognizes that his people are suffering and, and also that his people are, are still suffering from God's discipline, God's rejection that, that came because of, of their sin. And this moves him to ask the king to give him permission to go down to Jerusalem and work on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And the king is very generous in sending him with letters, giving him permission to do this and giving him the authority to, to acquire the materials necessary. And, and uh, Nehemiah later refers to himself as the, the governor um, in Jerusalem. So he's given an official position um, working with the other returned exiles to rebuild the walls and cover the shame that has been on God's people um, because of the discipline that the Lord had put on, on them because of their sin. And that's a great uh, way of, of speaking about the wall because it can get so so easily just when they need a wall to protect the city. And, and it's very clear that that's what you need. You needed that in that context. But also it was symbolic. If I just make sure I heard you correctly, because I, I agree, is it's symbolic because it brings back those memories of when Nebuchadnezzar came and just destroyed everything. The temple's gone. The wall is gone. And now the city just doesn't seem to be recovering. And it's not just because there's people who can attack them at any moment. They never quite feel comfortable. But it's a symbol of the, 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 the past sins that, that happened in Israel, that Judah was not faithful to the Lord, that there are consequences for this. And to rebuild that wall also re, reminded them that the Lord was restoring them in, in his good graces, that, that they were once again his people and that they, well, as Jeremiah says, I'll remember your sin no more. Kind of an absolution of sorts. I, I, I say that very hesitantly, but how, is, that, is that direction that you're talking? And Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, and, and I think the other thing, if we, if we continue our overview of, of the entire book, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves or, or step on the toes of your future guests, <laughs> but the other big project that Nehemiah has is kind of restoring discipline among the people. There are all mm -hmm. sorts of ways in which they have still been living contrary to God's word. Um, they, they've been taking foreign wives who are worshiping foreign gods, you know, idols. Um, there, there is the abuse of charging interest against their, their fellow, the leaders were charging interest against their fellow Jews who were in poverty. And, you know, it's the rich oppressing the poor. Um, and so there's, Nehemiah isn't, just working to rebuild the law, I mean, to rebuild the wall, but he's working to, to reestablish the law, a way of life among God's people. And I really think that as a work of literature, when we read Nehemiah, there, there is some symbolism, some parallels between those, that, that, that there's the shame of the broken wall, which is partly, yeah, with, without a wall, we're not our own you know, this city, you know, so to speak. Without our wall, we're defenseless. We're completely at um, at the mercy of, of of neighbors who might come in and try to oppress us. Um, and and so there is some shame. Just if we can rebuild the wall, then we kind of our our earthly stature goes up a bit. But but oh, there's a parallel then to that, the spiritual parallel of. There's a shame in the broken wall because this wall is broken because of our sin. And when Nehemiah prays in chapter 1, after hearing about the state of what's going on in Jerusalem, um, he confesses um, to God that even I and my father's house have sinned. You know, you had told us these things could happen. He doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, the previous generation did these things, but, but he reckons the sin as his own. He identifies with his, his people and says, we've, we've all fallen short of your, 
your rules and your commandments. And, and this broken wall is a constant reminder of that. And, and, and so in asking God to be with him in his effort to go to the king and, and then ultimately rebuild the wall, Nehemiah is, is praying for God to, to put aside that sin so it can be covered outwardly by the, the wall being rebuilt. But then there's a parallel situation of, you know, God is granting us forgiveness. God is absolving our, our sins and the sins of his people from the past. But as, as Paul says in Romans, you know, should we sin more so that grace may abound all the more? Certainly not. We need to clean up our house, so to speak, and, and stop living contrary to God's commandments. Um, and, and so I, I think that that there, there's a some parallels going on in, in a literary sense between the effort of rebuilding the wall and kind of restructuring, reconsecrating Israel according to um, the law of the covenant, and, and they they do um, you know kind of re-ratify the covenant with with Ezra later in the book. So when we, when we read this chapter, which is one of the more tedious um, <laughs> chapters of, of scripture, when, if, 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 when we consider it in its context and, and the, the eagerness of people after they hear Nehemiah, you know, he's there for three days. Then at night he goes around the wall and inspects it, you know, the, the ruins, and then he tells the priests and the leaders, this is, you know, what the plan that God has, has laid upon me, my desire to rebuild the wall. You know, this is what I'm here to do. And, um, and, and he tells the people, let us rise, for, um, that, that they should um, undertake this project. And, and, and their response is, let us rise up and build. And then that's the end of chapter two. And the very first thing we hear in chapter three then is that um, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built. The mm. exact thing that they, you know, the, the ESV translates the, the quotation um, with a period, but I think you can put an exclamation point at it. I think there's some excitement here. Let us rise up and build. Let us do it. And, and they get to work right away. Um, and that, you know, I, Brady, I'm sure in, in your congregation and in, in your own life, um, like all Christians, you've, um, you've had those periods of, of excitement. Yeah, let's, let's get going on this. And then also um, moments where we have to pause and reflect and you know, recognize our own sin. And, and, and we see that then in Nehemiah, that the excitement of building the wall wasn't immediately matched with excitement about affecting the lives of God's people, but Nehemiah pushes them in that direction. And, and this effort at rebuilding the wall is part of the effort of trying to return to live according to the word of God and to live as his people um, so that the shame of our sin wouldn't continue to be heaped upon us. That is incredibly helpful, Pastor uh, Murphy, because as we look at what they're building, like you said, this is a tedious chapter. I mean, th I think this is a chapter that if you are listening right now and you maybe are kind of um, nodding off, it's time to get some more coffee because I don't know if the exact words are going to keep you awake here, but we're going to do our best to obviously uncover Christ and to see the joys that the riches are in the Holy Scripture but also to show that this wall not only was to build and showing, hey, we're moving forward, but also it was a call, in essence, to repentance. Like This is a time for us to live a more holy life, and Nehemiah takes perfect advantage of that, of how this is being restored, and so do you have to be restored, and a call to us of the restoration that we need through repentance, through faith, through the forgiveness of sins, Christ, who is our gate. You know, this is the I am statement of Jesus. I am the door. I am the gate. And it continually points us over and over again to the, the shepherd, to the to the Christ, to the gate, to the doorway, 
to eternity and as he protects us from evil. So, Pastor, I want to do this. I want to read a little bit of, of, of this, and then I want us to reflect a little bit, and then I have a pastoral question that I think relates to the nature of this chapter as well. So are you ready to, to get going? Sure. All right, let's do this. Reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture, chapter 3, Nehemiah chapter 3, and I will read the first 12 verses. And a little bit of a precursor here, some of these words are pretty hard, so forgive me now if I um, don't quite read them correctly. But it is the Word of God and the gifts are ready. Chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zagar, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Baraka, Barakia, excuse me, Barakia, the son of Meshabal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Pashia, and Meshulam, the son of Besoda, repaired the gates of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to Uzael, the son of Herahiah, goldsmith repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them was Rephaha, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramph, repaired the, the opposite of his house. And next to him, Hadish, the son of Heshabanana, repaired. Malkajah, the son of Haram and Hesab, the son of Path of Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Helohesh, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So I'm going to take a little break from trying to pronounce those things, Pastor. And what did you find in these first 12 verses? Well, at the very beginning... Um, you know, I'll, I'll be forthright with you and, and tell you that sometimes some of these are just names that I don't really know um, <laughs> how to make any other connection to. But, but we start off, and I think this is significant, with the priests working at the, the sheep gate and repairing the sheep gate. So that even the, the priests, and I mean, if you think about Everything that goes on in in the books of Moses, you know, especially Exodus through Deuteronomy, there are so many things that the priests are exempt from. But but here they take up the task of, of doing the regular manual labor with everybody else. Yet they are working at the sheep gate, which which is most likely and I um. I think there's great consensus among the scholars who know more about Nehemiah than I do that this sheep gate is the gate through which the sheep were brought to the temple for sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, in a sense, they, they are doing a, a, a strange work, a, a not a normal work, but they're doing the work that is required of God's people to rebuild the wall. But in doing so, they are laying the groundwork for them to get back to their proper work of priests, um, conducting the liturgy of the divine service in the temple, offering sacrifices, um, 
bestowing God's holiness to his people. And, you know, that sometimes we look down on menial work. Um, but these priests, uh, again, I think they, it, to me, it sounds like they take up this work with excitement. Yes, let's, let's rise up and build. And they get to work. And in doing so, they lay the foundation of, of restoring proper worship at, at the house of God, which was the major, you know, offense that led to God, you know, Ezekiel tells us how God's glory left the temple um, and, and how that, uh, the idolatry that was going on in the temple is a major part of what leads to God handing his people over to the Babylonians. So rebuilding this wall is, is in, a, in a sense, not that we can ever make up for our sins in a, in a works righteousness sort of way, but it is a repentance, a returning to what God had established rather than what we had taken up for ourselves. Um, that, that's the work of Eliashib and um, the, the priests who work with him. And then in a, a lesser sense, you know, maybe all of the people of Israel, you know, they, they have their proper role among the people of Israel. Most of them are not builders. They're not masons. Um, you know, cutting and fitting stones, but that's the work that they take up in order that in order that they can go back to being goldsmiths and perfumers and you know um, the other occupations that aren't mentioned, but we we can assume that these people had of bakers, farmers, um, weavers you know, whatever their individual jobs were, their occupation, they pause that and, and take up the task of working on this wall, which, again, I think we can look at as a, an outward form of repentance. Right now, I want to touch more on that and how that relates to how the church works together in his kingdom, because I think there's ways that we have seen this in our own um, time and age and ways that maybe we can do more of as, a, the, as the body of Christ. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 3 with Pastor Ned Murby, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We continue to study Nehemiah chapter 3. And right now, we're at a very unique point in this chapter, not because of, uh, of the words that are easy or whatever it might be, um, but because it really struck me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this too, Pastor, of how many people are required to have their hands all on deck. Some are from Jerusalem. Some seem to have more um, unique skills. As you mentioned, the high priests are kind of are leading the way to make sure that, that people are able to do this task as a form of repentance and looking to the Lord for restoration. And so I'm kind of wondering, this kind of relates like when a church does a building project or a restoration project at their congregation, a lot of times isn't just two or three people working, but it's all the hands are on deck because they need as many hands as they possibly can get. Other thoughts on, on how this also relates to the church today? Well, yeah, so I think there's something like 41 different groups that are mentioned, and, mm. and there's, there's no way to know how many people are in each group, but it really is 
a, a community effort. And certainly, like you mentioned, when there's a, a building or renovation project, um, you know, it, it, many hands make light work. Mm. You know, it, it, the, the pastor cannot um, add on, you know, an extension to the fellowship hall or something by himself. Um, I know I couldn't. There may be pastors out there who could do it, but it would take him a long time and it would detract from his proper call as, as a pastor. Um, when we come together, we can get a lot more done. But, but again, this doesn't just have to apply to things um, relating to the structure of the building of the church, but, but the church as you know, the temple of God. That, you know, we're, we're being built up upon the foundation of, of Christ, and we build one another up. Um, in, in, so j- just, I think we're going to look at this, you know, the, the pastor doesn't teach every Sunday school class. You know, the pastor, um, I, I think every pastor probably wants to greet the visitors that, that come into the congregation he serves, but um, he can't really get to know everybody every day, you know, especially if there are many guests coming. And, and, and so we all work together to welcome people. Um, we all work together to make sure that the church is ready. You know, we have altar guilds, we have elders, we have musicians, um, and and the, the body of Christ is built up by all of these things. And sometimes we have to set aside um, strictly the, the, the proper calling of, of our office. Sometimes the pastor, I mean, there have been times when I've been the only adult up here. Um, my son was with me and he flushed a urinal and it started to back up. And I had to take off my pastor hat and put on a plumber hat, even though I don't have a lot of funding knowledge because otherwise we could have had a real big problem. Right. Um, so right. I banged on pipes and stuff until it stopped. <laughs> but um, the priests, they're not laborers in this sense by trade, but they gladly take up that task and, and it enables them to get back to their task of, of serving in the temple. And, you know, we have different occupations, different vocations, but something comes up at the church and we all try to pitch in in order that the word of Christ can be heard you know, around the world. I mean, that's kind of what you and I are doing today. We're not the, you and I are both pastors called the particular congregation. Um, and some of them may be listening to this, but, you know, we're sending this out to the world so that the church might be built up. Mm. Um, and and I, I pray to God that it is. And, and, and I think that's a picture of what we have in Nehemiah. These verses that might be boring, um, I think, serve to sanctify the tedious work that Christians are also called to do. Maybe not our, our favorite thing. You know, maybe it's going to a, a church council meeting or um, working on a, a, a budget for next year. You know, th- those aren't the exciting moments. In, in ministry for a pastor or for lay people in a congregation, but it's it's work that really does serve the broader work of, of getting the gospel out there. Nehemiah three may be tedious to read, but it reminds us that God works through our tedious work as well. You know, it reminds me of one other aspect, and I think then I'll start reading a little more. Is when I came here, there was a. a the head elder of this congregation at Messiah Lutheran Church um, was he was a major part of the call process, and a few years later he had to I guess you'd say retire. He's retired from his bank job, but he retired, and he came to my office one day, and thankfully he's still with us to this day. He he came to my office. We're just kind of shooting the breeze, and I said, you know, how how long have you been serving on boards? And he said, oh, you know what? Actually, I stopped doing it when I hit fifty years of service on boards and churches. And this is, I think, three different congregations that he had served. And I did, you know, my jaw went to the ground, kind of like, whoa, that's amazing. How could you do that? How does this happen? And, and, and he made a comment of, you know, it isn't for everybody, but it's just the way that the Lord allowed me to serve. 
And I thought that was really a helpful. And I think that relates to what we're seeing today is not, and you notice not everyone's doing the same work or the same place, but yet they're all, like I said, hands are on deck. And that's the same, like you said so wonderfully, how uh, people, we need ushers, we need altar guild, we need people to make the coffee, we need, we need people to upkeep the building, we need people to do, uh, to go to board meetings. And that is a blessed work because if a board is not well ran, that hurts the church, that hurts the word and sacrament ministry. So you need quality people to do that, and God provides uh, those opportunities. So I'll have to... Uh, get a hold of my leader and tell him I, I use him on the radio today because I think it fits yeah. well with our chapter today. I, I agree. Yeah. So let's keep moving forward. Uh, we are in verse 13 and we'll continue through verse 27. Hanan, the inhabitants of Zenoa, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. He built the wall and the pool of Shelah, in the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down to the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of the district of Bethzur, repaired it to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired Rehum, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him their brothers repaired, Bave, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half of the district of Kela. Next to him, Azer, the son of Jeshua, the ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabi, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door in the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men, the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashib repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Amasiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, his he, he, son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress to the corner. Paulal, the son of Usai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house to the king and the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perush, and the temple servants living in Ophiel repaired a point opposite at the water gate on the east end projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophiel. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> so, Pastor, as we look at this, I'm reminded of the commentary uh, by Dr. Steinman of both both Ezra and Nehemiah. And pretty much in this uh, Nehemiah 3 section, there's a picture that gives a great example of all the sections that these people worked on. It shows all these people, like you said, 41 different groups. And it's quite fascinating to look at because you have a section for the priest. You see the sheep gate. You see the inhabitants of Zenoa, and you see all of that, but they all have a part to play. So I would encourage our listeners, if you have that commentary, to look up that figure 25. Actually, I don't have the page number because I copied it off, but it shows us a general idea. 425. 425. Page 425? Yeah. Uh, uh, page 425. I have mine open there right in front of me because Wonderful. otherwise I couldn't keep these straight. Yeah, right. You memorize it. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just a great a visual for us to be able to see the wall because we usually think of the temple as like the big thing and the wall is kind of just 
so you know just kind of there but the wall is expansive it's long it, it it covers everything and the whole city of david or jerusalem and so that's is a good visual for me to see pastor as you hear these words as you look at everything you have any thoughts on these verses or about the wall um well this is a good reminder that when we confess the clarity of scripture that that does not mean that we know everything that to, to get the full picture of what um, the scripture is giving us. Um, the picture that Dr. Steinman gives us, and, and um, it, it's based off of something by a gentleman named uh, Trier, I think, mm-hmm. um, that, you, you know, th- this is a pretty good description, a pretty good visual but when you read his notes, you know, there's some questions, you know, if what really was this, you know, gate talking about? Are all of these gates in the wall itself or are some of them in the wall that goes just around the temple? Um, we might be confused by some of those things, not because the word of God is is not clear, but because we don't know you know, ancient Palestinian geography and neighborhoods well enough. Um, but, but Nehemiah's readers would have known exactly where these things were. And we, we understand from them, you know, the gist of what this wall was for and, and, and where it was. So, so that, that's quite a blessing. You know, we don't have to be able, sometimes I think passages like this, become tedious just because we can't picture it mm-hmm. in, in our mind mm-hmm. uh maps in in aids like commentaries and, and and charts things like that help a great deal but um if, even then if, if there's some uncertainty that doesn't mean there's uncertainty about the gospel because we know that the building of the wall was completed and that god was was blessing this work um even though this is one of you know few books in the Old Testament where there's no record of God, you know we don't get any of the word of the Lord came to me and said mm-hmm. in Nehemiah. Um, yet we know that Nehemiah he himself draws on the word of God in, in his prayer and and in his teaching. He has Ezra read the law to the people, um, and and so this we do know that this is being done in, in repentance and faith. Um, and so we see that, that what, what we can see and know for certain is, is that God receives that repentance and faith and, um, you know, he bestows his grace, his mercy on us. He counts it to Nehemiah as righteous, just as he counted faith to Abraham as righteous and, each of God's people when we hear his word. Um, and, and, and so, I mean, for me, even though this may be tedious and boring, it's not as exciting as David going and you know, killing Goliath or something. Um, this looks a lot more like my life than David trying on Saul's armor and then taking his stones and, and swing to, to kill Goliath. Um, oh, that's good. That's very good. So I, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> Well, I like how you highlight that. We, um, we've been doing the Psalms uh, last week. We were doing some of the Psalms in the early this week as well. And one of the reflections we had was some of the Psalms, specifically Psalm 4 with Dr. Uh, Brian uh, uh, German, um, is that he, he's kind of like the prayer in Psalm 4 kind of begins with, hear my prayer, and then he kind of wanders a little bit in his prayer. And it's a wonderful prayer that David gives us because it's kind of how we pray. You know, we kind of start off with good words, and then we kind of wander off a little bit. And this this chapter is probably a good rendition, like you said, is that if someone were to follow our lives each day and say, this is what Pastor Murby did today, this is what Pastor Finneran did today, and they wrote it all down and they handed it to your wife or to your your, your members or something, they might fall asleep by halfway through the writing. Cause this is, this is terribly boring. I mean, what this is, he went and read and then he sat with someone for an hour and then he 
got a soda and then he went and read some more and then, you know, whatever. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Exactly. (laughs) Um, You know, sometimes I think we wish our lives were more exciting um, or or we, we worship falsely the the stillness of, of a life that we feel ours is too hectic. Um, But but Nehemiah, I think shows us the proper balance. Um, I mean, this, this is excitement. I mean, it's tedious to read, but you know, in the next chapter, it gets even more exciting because there's opposition to building the wall, and and now they have to kind of work on the wall with one hand while while they hold on to their weapon with their other hand because they could be attacked at any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. So, mm. reading it is tedious, but living it was was exciting. And I, I don't know. Sometimes I think we just we lose perspective on our own lives. Um. And it, we get robbed of joy so easily. Um, and I think it's, you know, we make comparisons with others or, or what, whatnot, but we just stop to see God's faithfulness, God's presence in our own lives. And, um, you know, just like we can fail to see Jesus' presence in these tedious passages of the, the Old Testament, but when we do see how this this really is part of God's plan for bringing salvation to the world, right. um, and, and we'll get to that after you read the last paragraph, I think. Um, but when we see this as, as part of God directing history to bring Christ into the world to accomplish our salvation, um, there, there's joy that comes with it, even if it's, it's tedious, even if we, we can't quite picture it all in our imagination um and it we need to learn to to grasp onto that joy and and just hand over our our ignorance to god and say i i I don't fully know you know what this wall would have looked like or or exactly where it was or where these gates are what they all were used for but i see your faithfulness to nehemiah and to your people and that reminds me of your faithfulness to me, Christ, and, and reassures me of your faithfulness. And, and this time, maybe in my life, when things don't look so certain outwardly, that the church is going to make it or that things are going to go the way I want them to. But I know that because I'm baptized into Christ, I'm in your care. Um, and we may wander around like David does in the Psalms, but right. we, we can keep coming back to to God's faithfulness, even when we don't see it. One, one, of, the, one of the situations that strikes you as well, and you see this throughout Leviticus um, specifically is what I'm thinking of. And by the way, in the, in the next few months, we will be studying Leviticus. So hold on to your bootstraps, folks. It's coming, um, which is going to be a lot of fun. But when we, when we look at the order that our Lord, because God is a God of order, um, I would compare it to creation in the sense that although we're not able to fully understand the mystery of how God did what he did in creation, we accept it by faith. And, and he's a God of order. He does it in an order for a purpose and usually for our good. Uh, not usually, for our good, excuse me. And here, is, is it God of order? And why would we think the wall would be any different? Much like when you build, when you build our houses or our churches or our schools, that there's a long preparatory nature of that. And one of the beauties of this is that you see a God of order bringing his people together, that it isn't just Nehemiah who's like, let's build a wall, and he goes up there and barely anyone shows up. And, you know, there's other parts of Scripture where it feels like the prophets and others are on their own. But here, Nehemiah is like, let's build a wall, and people gather, and people are building, and people are working together. And what a beautiful sight it would have been 41 groups working together with one common mission um, because they know they need restoration and they know the Lord is the one who gave them that restoration. So I, I really, that really struck me too as the order um, that we see today is an important aspect as we see all throughout Scripture, the order of creation, the order of salvation, the order of his return and our re- final restoration. So, Pastor, I think we have time to read the rest, and I know you wanted to talk uh, uh, more about the implications throughout Scripture and what that means for us today. So, uh, let's read the rest of our verses, which is 28 through 32. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, 
each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imer, repaired opposite his house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaliah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants repaired. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah. <laughs> so, Pastor, as we bring this all together, we have about five minutes left of our time together. How would you um, pull this together as, uh, well, let, me, let me put it this way. You're sitting with a confirmand, and you're like, we're going to read the word of the Lord. And you get to some chapter like Nehemiah chapter 3, and the kid's like, this is awful. What are we doing? It is boring. What's the point of this? How would you pull that all together like you would that we, we that as we study today? Well, I, I think our generation in particular has lost an appreciation for history. Mm. Um, and really, I, I think this post-exilic period has a lot of parallels to what we find ourselves going through today. Um, you know, this isn't a time when a whole bunch of prophets are active and doing miracles and things like that. Um, it, it's just men who are sent by God to call people, call his people to faithfulness as they're waiting for the fulfillment of his promise for the Messiah to come. And we today, we go to church to be encouraged as we wait for, for Christ's return. But this, this wall that is rebuilt by Nehemiah and, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem in general is a connection between you know, everything that God had promised in the Old Testament that was pointing to Christ and building to Christ for a moment seemed as though it was destroyed. You know, for, for a moment, there was no temple. Well, well, how is God going to keep bestowing his holiness upon his people if there is no temple? It's, it's the place where his name was to dwell among his people, and he was to hear and bless his people. If that's no more, how does he sustain that promise? You know, he, he made great promises to David uh, about his descendant who would reign not only over um, Israel, but, but all the nations, all the world. Um, but for a while, there's, there's no king of David sitting on a throne ruling a kingdom from, from Jerusalem. Um, these tedious portions of the Old Testament following the exile, um, you know, the, the beginning of First Chronicles is another place where you have these long genealogies, and it's like, what's the point? Well, the point is these genealogies show us how the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, was preserved by God through the exile and is now being brought back to Jerusalem to continue the Lord's ministry there. And, and, and David's family has been preserved so that the son of David can come. And Nehemiah tells us that, that the city itself um, surrounding the temple where God had promised to meet his people, that is being rebuilt and, and repaired so that God's presence might continue to be found among his people, that, that they could continue to worship him and receive his gifts. And that continues up to the time of Christ. Um, these walls will be dedicated. Um, you'll discuss that in a, a, a few days, probably mm -hmm. next week with somebody. Um, but but they, they're sanctified when Christ himself walks through these gates um, and along these walls. Um, you know, the, the fountain gate that we heard of in the Pool of Shalah, that, that's, that's probably the Pool of Shalom where he sends the blind man to, to go and wash in, in John chapter 9 and, and he's healed of his blindness. You know, these walls become part of Jesus' story. Um, 
and yet they're they're not only the, the groundwork for Christ coming, but but they're you know they, they point to him. Jesus is you know the new temple. His his bride is the new Jerusalem, um, and, and the new Jerusalem is not surrounded by these walls of stone. And so when Jesus tells the the, the high priest, you know, after he's cleansed the temple, and they, they say, well, by what authority do you do this? You know, give us a sign. And he says, well, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. And and he's speaking not about the the, the temple of stone, but the temple of his body. Jesus replaces that temple. He replaces Jerusalem with his church um, so that these walls are no longer needed. Nehemiah built them faithfully. There, there are Christians who, who I think are trying to, to serve God, but who misunderstand the scriptures and think that we need to rebuild the physical city of Jerusalem for Jesus to be able to fulfill his promises. But now that he has come in the flesh, we do not need the temple of stone. And now that his people have been made into the holy city of Jerusalem, the, the, the new Jerusalem, we don't need physical walls surrounding the earthly city of Jerusalem because our shame is not covered by walls of stone, but as Paul says, as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are a new creation in Him. Our shame for all of our sin, because Brady, you and I have plenty of sin too, um, it, it, it's covered by the garment of salvation put upon us in baptism. Um, and, you know, again, we can, we can be tempted to think of baptism as such a small thing. We can look at this chapter and be like, why all this detail about a little thing like building a wall? Well, what what looks small in the eyes of men, God uses for great things. And, and in our baptism, you know, which, depending on, on which form of the rite we use, you know, that, that might take 10 minutes or more in church. Um, and yet all that's really essential to baptism can be done in about 20 seconds, mm-hmm. pouring water on somebody in the name of the triune God. Um, but, but we elaborate it to, to, to remember what God is doing here um, and to try to remind ourselves that, that, that this is a great thing. Um, in baptism, we have the righteousness of Christ, so that um, no longer do we need to be ashamed of our sins. Um, it, it looks small to the world, but it is great because this is God delivering his salvation to us. So in Nehemiah 3, we see God setting things up, preserving his people in order to bring about Christ's first coming and, and the salvation that he accomplishes in our flesh. But now as we await his second coming, we are reminded that our shame is covered by the salvation, by the righteousness that Christ bestows upon us, and, and we wait eagerly for him. So we can, like the, the, the people of Jerusalem, we can, with excitement, say, let us get up and, and, and be about the work of the Lord. You know, let us be about building his, his, his mm-hmm. kingdom um, as instruments of the Holy Spirit in that endeavor. Um, to be a Christian, you know, we ought not be bored. We never have an excuse to be bored because God has given us more than enough to do. Um, um, but, but ultimately, the work um, lies with Him, and, and that's where I'd I'd like to leave our listeners as we reflect on this tedious, yet in its own way exciting passage of Scripture. Pastor Ned Murby of Trinity Lutheran Church in Blackwell, Oklahoma, giving us the strong word of God from Nehemiah chapter 3. Pastor, thank you again for being our guest. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Saints of our Lord, the wall was needed, and it was being rebuilt. 
But it wasn't just being rebuilt for protection. It was rebuilt because of what the shame was, and it was now showing that God was a God of restoration, not only of that temple, not only of that time, but because of the temple still yet to come, the gate, the door to salvation that was still yet to come, and that was Jesus Christ our Lord, who through him salvation comes, and through him we no longer have shame, but as Pastor said so well, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ in our baptism. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.